wish to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David, for a very special episode, another special episode. David, how are you doing? Doing pretty good, Neil. Excellent. Are you as excited about this as I am? I am very excited. Okay, we'll say we're about the same level of excitement because today is a special anniversary, David, and we like to do these special anniversary episodes to celebrate Some things that happened on this day, if you're listening to this the day we release it, something that happened on this day and 50 years ago is what we're talking about today. So David, I'll ask you the question that I have to ask, oh brother, when art thou? Neil, it is 50 years ago precisely today, and for the first time in human history, mankind walks on the surface of a planet other than the planet Earth. Dun-dun-dun! Big moment, David. Guess which one? Well, I'm going to guess that it's the only planet humans have walked on other than Earth. The moon. Got it in one. One for one. Pretty good. We should say that it's July 20th today. If you're not listening to this on July 20th, then it's 50 years ago plus however many days it is past July 20th. But, David, obviously this is a huge anniversary, 50 years since the first moon landing. So take us back, David, to July 20th, 1969. So the thing to remember is that everything happens in a context. And the moon landing was the biggest news in the world on July 20th, 1969. But one of the reasons why it stood out so much is because the other news that people were reading in the late 60s was not cheerful. It had been a hard decade in some ways for the entire world with the Cold War raging between the Soviet Union and the United States, with the Vietnam War raging on, people dying this was a moment when out of maybe not always the happiest of beginnings suddenly something impressive something great but also something that just unequivocally was good was happening in front of the entire world it's definitely a big moment david and as neil armstrong said for all mankind not just for the USA or for Neil Armstrong. This was a big moment for everyone around the world. So let's delve into that context a little bit and talk about how we got to the moon and why it mattered. So the Apollo program was an amazing amount of money, of resources, and of ingenuity being expended to achieve something which from the outside seems kind of pointless. One of those questions you have to ask when you look at this particular achievement is why did they want to put an astronaut on the moon? 
Why did they want to put an astronaut on the moon, David? Well, to quote John Fitzgerald Kennedy. I've heard of him. You've heard of him? That's good. We go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard. They wanted to achieve this because it was a test, essentially, of whether they could genuinely operate in space, whether it was within the capabilities and resources of mankind to get beyond our planet and actively uh, work in space. And the moon was a great objective because it's relatively close as far as extraterrestrial objects go, but it was also very objective. When you can argue over the definition of what is and isn't space or a complete orbit, you really can't argue about what is or isn't the moon. What a badass quote, David. One of the most badass quotes of all time. We do these things because they are hard. So JFK wants to do this. He wants to go to the moon because it is hard. Did people think they could do it? Did they really think they could get this job done? Well, on the one hand, when JFK first announces that he is dedicating the U.S. space program to this goal, it's a very optimistic time. The 1950s have just ended, the 1960s are beginning, and technology of all kinds is making massive leaps seemingly all the time. Everything is getting better. People believe they can achieve amazing things. But also, he sets a deadline. He doesn't just say, we're going to go to the moon. He says, we're going to go to the moon within the decade of the 1960s. And pretty much everybody thinks that that is crazy because that's only 10 years. That's a very short space of time to say we're going to pull off such a massive project. This is something that humans have probably dreamed about for all time. You know, probably the very first humans looked up at the moon and thought, I wonder what it would be like to go up there. And now in the space of 10 years, less than 10 years, John F. Kennedy is committing the U.S. to put a man on the moon. What kind of things does this set in motion, David? What is What does it look like, the organization, to try and put a man on the moon in less than a decade? Well, the first problem that everybody knew that they had to solve if they wanted to put a man on the moon is the rocket itself. There's no other way that we know of yet to fly in space other than through rocket propulsion. And therefore, they knew in 1961 that if they wanted to put a man on the moon, they needed to build a rocket powerful enough to get there. And to do that, the United States turned to a very surprising person, Werner von Braun, a former Nazi rocket weapons developer. That does sound like a very surprising person to turn to, David. It's not that long after World War II, they've just defeated the Nazis, and now they're going to recruit this Nazi to help them get to the moon. Well, they're going to get him to help them to go to the moon, but they'd already recruited him in 1945 as part of a larger operation codenamed Operation Paperclip. 
the U.S. government had decided that after all of the critical differences that advances in technology had caused during World War II, they needed to push their military technology as far forward as they could in its immediate aftermath. And so to do that, they were going to capture as many Nazi weapon developers and scientists as possible and have them, at least temporarily, work for the United States. That's when they arrested Werner von Braun. That's when they took him as a rocket developer and started him actually developing weapons for the U.S. military. And that's why in 1960 he's available and in some ways an obvious choice for the NASA administrators to turn to when they're looking for somebody to build a really, really big rocket. So David, they start building this really, really big rocket looking to get to the moon. What are the sorts of problems they're encountering over the next decade as we work towards 1969? Well, they're going to encounter just about every kind of problem you can imagine from personnel difficulties as they have to recruit this team of the best in the United States and get them working on it to the political pressure that starts to come down as the Russian space project continues and at times seems to be ahead and therefore encourages American politicians to feel like their space program maybe isn't delivering everything they expect, but they also encounter some, let's say, less trivial problems. One of the most extreme comes in the very first test of the equipment that they're hoping to use as part of this Apollo program. They call it Apollo 1. It's the first ever manned test of the Saturn V spacecraft. And tragically, all three crew aboard, Virgil Grissom, Edward White, and Roger Chaffee, die in an electrical fire that burns out of control when the equipment fails. An absolute tragedy, David, and really the worst possible start you could imagine for the Apollo program. Why don't they just give up? I mean, it seems like at that point, you'd think there would be a lot of pressure to just quit, to try to say this isn't doable. Of course, as they face every setback from the minor to the tragic, there's always pressure to give up, not just to say this is impossible, but to say this is too expensive. America's fighting a war in Vietnam. America has poverty and racism and all kinds of problems at home that this money could be spent to try and alleviate. But instead, they're trying to go to the moon. But there's countervailing pressures pushing this project forward from the, frankly, petty rivalry with the Soviet Union space program, which both continues apace, but also frequently along this path seems to be ahead, even if, looking back on it, we know that the Soviets were actually being trapped 
into some dead ends in their rocket technology as their development gets slowed. They achieve a bunch of dramatic firsts by taking risks, and that can make NASA look slow, and therefore it can drive politicians to say, we have to keep doing this or else the Russians will make us look bad. But there's also the more noble impulse The drive to go to space is driven by people who believe that it really will help to develop technology for all of mankind, and therefore they don't want to stop in the face of a tragedy because that would just double down, cause a second tragedy on top of the first. So they keep going, David, and they're going to keep building these that was apollo 1 it's apollo 11 is the one that eventually lands on the moon so what happens to apollos 2 through 10 well there's a lot of different stories packed in there of course most of the early flights are unmanned nasa recognizes especially after what happened on apollo 1 that need to have a crew on board for preliminary testing of equipment and that Obviously, it's safer if you've already flown the rocket without having humans on board to know that all of the equipment is going to work when you do put people on board. But then they start getting the Saturn V's off the ground. They start to believe in the technology. And even then, they're cautious. They make sure that they do multiple flights that don't go all the way to the moon and back or do go all the way around the moon but never actually set foot on the surface just to make sure that they really can achieve this goal that they want to achieve safely for the crew before they make the big one apollo 11 so let's get to apollo 11 tell us about this historic flight So you've got the crew, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and in the control module, Michael Collins, are all preparing to take off into space. All of them have extensive experience, both as pilots, test pilots for the military, and as astronauts. So they are carefully chosen, the best of the best possible crew to complete this mission. Next up is the equipment. You've got the Saturn V rocket itself, still the most powerful rocket ever launched into space by humans. And since no one else has launched rockets into space from Earth, we'll just say it's the most powerful (laughs) rocket ever launched into space. Exactly. And on top of that, and in some ways the more nerve-wracking equipment for this flight, because it's the element that you couldn't test until you go to the moon, you have the lunar lander, the first-ever rocket designed to land on the moon and then to take off and get back 
into orbit around the moon so that it can be picked up by the control module and brought back to Earth. And that's a very important part of this whole process. It's not just getting to the moon, it's getting back safely. Yeah, that's a tough part of the battle is coming home. And that too is an element that, quite frankly, everybody is very worried by. In point of fact, President Richard Nixon, the U.S. president at the time, actually had a speech prepared to make on national television, which he knew would be showing all of this live if the lunar lander failed and the crew which had made it to the moon could not return back to Earth. That reminds me of General... Eisenhower in our last special episode, number 28, The Great Crusade, which was about the D-Day landings, and Eisenhower had his speech prepared taking full responsibility for the D-Day landings if they were to be a failure, which of course they weren't, and you can go back to our previous podcast to hear about why not, but sort of a similar situation here, David, with Nixon having the speech prepared for the worst case scenario as well. One of the marks of a leadership prepared enough to create success is the fact that they are also prepared enough to react appropriately to failures. And part of that is public communications and telling people what's going on even when things go wrong and communicating what is going on with the moon landing is another big part of nasa's preparations it's not all just building a rocket ship that can go to the moon they also want the world to know what they're doing why they're doing it and to let people see their achievements when they make them because they know that it's an inspiring moment and they want to be able to share that. So what are they doing to communicate it, David? You mentioned that it was going to be live on TV. That's pretty exciting, a pretty big deal for 1969, I would imagine. That is an amazing deal for 1969 because they don't just put it live on TV in the immediate area of the Cape Canaveral Launch Center. They put it live on TV everywhere that they can, pushing the 1960s TV broadcast equipment to its limits so that they can actually have a live broadcast, which otherwise wouldn't be technically feasible, almost around the world. That's very cool, David. And just what an amazing thing for the whole world to be able to tune in and watch this historic moment. So we were talking about Apollo 11 and this flight, this historic flight, the three astronauts on Saturn V with the lunar lander. They get to the moon, David, and then comes the big moment. Well, even as they head down towards the moon, before the lunar lander even touches down, they have their first surprise when the terrain underneath the lander is not exactly what they expected and Neil Armstrong has to fly the lander to land 
on the best possible site that he can find in a very short space of time with the world watching and with everything at stake, of course. Surprises aren't good when you're at the moon, basically by yourself, just three guys. So, David, I think a lot of people nowadays were used to autopilot, cruise control, but Neil Armstrong was actually flying the lunar lander down to the moon. He was landing a craft, and it's worth remembering, this isn't like on Earth. This isn't an airplane. There's no atmosphere to fly in. He is controlling the rockets that are underneath the lunar lander to attempt to slow down the descent caused by the moon's gravity to a speed slow enough and a direction precise enough that they will land safely instead of falling too fast and crashing. It's a precise technical operation which he has to conduct by hand. And he does. And obviously one for which he's never had a real-world test before. It's not like you can practice from a lower height and then work your way up to the moon because you have to go all the way to the moon to practice. So he hasn't really done this except for on simulators. But what a big moment. Does he manage to get past the rocky terrain, David, and put them down safely? He manages to find a patch of solid enough ground to set the lander down safely. He makes it. They land. And then comes the big moment. With the world watching, it's time to open up the lunar lander and, for the first time in history, have actual human beings, admittedly in spacesuits, walk down and step foot on the moon. What a moment, David. Just thinking about it sends a tingle down my spine. I can't imagine what they must have been thinking as they open the door to the lunar capsule. Like Everything has to be just perfect or else that's it. And everything goes perfectly. They step down the ladder, Neil Armstrong, the commander of the mission, going first. And famously, he says into his microphone, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. But it doesn't sound like that, David. I've heard the recording before. There's that extra syllable in there. As it happens, he did, in point of fact, say that's one small step for a man. But because of the poor recording equipment of the day, not the microphone itself, but the transmission back to Earth, which had to bounce through the command module because you couldn't transmit directly from the moon, they lost the A from the sentence, which kind of renders it a little bit incomprehensible when you actually think one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. What's the difference between man and mankind in that sentence? But ultimately, everybody sort of forgave that one and just accepted the great moment in the spirit it was intended. What do they do on the moon, David? Just stroll around to take in the sights? Well, they had a 
large number of tasks to conduct while they were on the moon. They planted the U.S. flag to formally signify their presence on the moon, the first humans ever to make it there. But they also did important scientific work collecting geological samples of the surface so that scientists back on Earth would be able to study the makeup of the moon and better understand how the solar system works. And they also planted a laser reflector, a mirror, on the moon's surface so that scientists on Earth could fire very precisely a laser and bounce it back to get more precise measurements on where the moon physically is in relation to the Earth than had ever been possible until somebody landed on it. Truly historic, David. 50 years ago today, July 20th, 1969, the first moon landing. What a great moment. What a great story. It's an astounding story of humanity and the things we can achieve when we're driven to achieve them. And you're pretty sure they didn't just film it in Hollywood. And we are fairly confident that it really 100% truly happened and there's no way they could have faked it. Yes. Just like everything on this podcast, amazing story and absolutely true. Thanks for telling us, David. It's an amazing story to be able to tell, Neil. And as we always like to end our podcasts with a game, I've got a game for you, David. And you remember the famous thing they said, the eagle has landed. Indeed. Of course, the eagle is the lunar module. That was the code name for the lunar module. It wasn't an actual eagle that landed. But there were other lunar modules, and they all had their own code names. So I thought we'd do a little quiz and see if you could uh, figure out the code names of some of these lunar landers. All right. So first one's pretty easy. This lunar module is a January astrological sign represented by the water bearer. Aquarius? It is Aquarius, which was Apollo 13, the water bearer. All right, the next lunar module first appeared in the Peanuts comic strip on October 4th, 1950. A lunar module named after something from the Peanuts comic strip. I'll guess Snoopy? Two for two, David. You're right. It was Snoopy, and that was the lunar module for Apollo 10. Our next lunar module has been clocked at 200 miles per hour, making it the fastest moving creature on Earth. That wouldn't be a falcon, would it? It was the falcon, which was Apollo 15's lunar module. Of course, the Peregrine Falcon is the type of falcon that has been clocked at 200 miles per hour. The lunar module was just called the falcon. Next lunar module was a giant hunter in Homer's Odyssey. Giant hunter? Who? Perhaps Odysseus himself? It's actually Orion. Of course, it's also a constellation. And that was the lunar module for Apollo 16. Final one, David. There are 3,000 species of this lunar module in the United States, and they lay up to 3,000 eggs. Wouldn't be beetles, would it? 
Good guess. It's actually Spider. Very close. Spider was the lunar module for Apollo 9. Thanks for playing along, David. I always enjoy these, Neil. And that's the end of our special episode. Make sure you follow, like, subscribe, whatever it is on your favorite podcast app to see all the future episodes of Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And thanks for listening. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind.